0: Uh, And you might want to turn to the book of James, Uh, just after Hebrews and uh, just before 1 Peter, James chapter 1. If you haven't got a Bible, no worries, I'll be um, putting it up on the screen later. So I've let the cat out of the bag. This morning we're going to be starting our new preaching series, the book of James. And over the next few months, really right up until um, Christmas, uh, just before Christmas, really, we're going to be looking um, at this at the very practical advice, if you like, that this book offers. Um, Wikipedia, that font of all knowledge, that place you go to when you want to know something true. Um, I actually think it gets it right because actually, the uh, Wikipedia says the object of the writer of the Book of James was to enforce the practical duties of the Christian life. That's what it says. This book, as we'll see over the coming um, few weeks, is in your face practical wisdom. That's what the book of James is about. Uh, Lots of people have said lots of things about um, uh, this this letter, this, uh, this book of James. Not everyone throughout history actually liked it. Martin Luther, that great hero of faith, the Protestant reformer, the what, uh, the the guy who really changed the face of Christianity throughout Europe, he described the Book of James as an epistle of straw, not much to it. Um, an interesting way to describe the wor- word of God, don't you think? Um, however, if I if I can say this, he has a he has a little point. As you read it, as we go through it together, you'll realise that actually. It lacks some of the beauty and some of the well put together arguments that we, say, that we see in say, some of Paul's, um, uh, the Apostle Paul's letters. Um, you'll realise it can be a bit abrupt sometimes. Sometimes it's a bit flighty. But nevertheless, it's there in our Bibles, and as such, we need to approach it as God breathed, inspired by God Himself, um, to change us, to teach us something. Um, and you know what? God often uses many unlikely people to bring uh, teaching and direction and fortification to the people of God. We see that throughout the Bible, even James. Okay, so who, who is this James fella? Well, the answer is, we don't know. Really, really for sure. Um, but most people probably think it was Jesus' brother or half-brother who initially... Who initially didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, even though it was his brother, but totally, totally changed his mind after the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to him for real as the risen Messiah. A moment which actually transformed uh, James' entire life. If you're a Christian here this morning, or if you're not a Christian here this morning, watch out. The same risen Jesus, as Shirley sung out this morning, um, is right here now by His Spirit. Okay. So let's read, shall we, uh, James chapter 1. We're going to read James chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. I'm going to miss a few verses in the middle, because I'll be dealing with those in November. Uh, (laughs) So, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings, as the message version says. Hello. <laughs> Consider it pure joy, pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature he created. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, I thank you for this letter. I thank you for these coming few months. I pray, Lord God, as we delve into this book, as we go deeper into your God-breathed uh, wisdom, I pray, Lord God, that you will mold us, you will change us, you will uh, open up areas of our heart, of our lives that need opening up. I pray, Lord God, that you'll speak into situations uh, that make us vulnerable to different things. I pray, Lord God, that you'll speak into people's lives and make them fly. I pray, Lord God, that you'll bring correction where correction is needed. I pray, Holy Spirit, most of all, though, bring us to you. Bring us into a relationship with the living God more and more by your word as we seek to unpack it by your spirit. Thank you, Lord. So, um, James addresses uh, this letter to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings, he says. Um, This is the backdrop, if you like, to this letter. James is writing to Christians, often new Christians, often in relatively new churches, growing, thriving, multiplying churches, who at the same time are bang in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, And are in the midst of dispersal, running, fleeing for their very lives as a result of their faith in Jesus. That's the setting here. Got it? Unlikely. A lot of us here, you see, we just won't get this. We can't really, because we've never experienced in this country this total uprooting of house and of home on the run fleeing for your life, suffering for Jesus in this way, have we? However, the flip side of that, as many of you will know uh, in Jubilee, is that a lot of people here will get this. This has been your experience of life, particularly as a believer. If you're from another nation here, if you're from another nation where the gospel of Jesus is spreading like wildfire, on a backdrop of political persecution, torture and running, Africa maybe, Iran maybe, China maybe, then you will really get this letter. In fact, maybe some of these passages or passages like it have actually comforted you in your time of difficulty. So really, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Suffering for Jesus suffering in Jesus' name. So if you're expecting a light and easy intro, it's not coming. James doesn't let us in slowly. He gets straight to the point. However, what I want to say also from the very outset um, this morning, before we get into the detail, if this isn't your experience of suffering, persecution, conflict, torture, then actually don't switch off either. If you think that the suffering that you are more used to is very, very different from the chosen suffering in this passage, I would like to suggest, actually, we all choose suffering in some way for Jesus. Why do I say that? Because I believe the Bible describes all of our suffering, whether it's cancer or conflict, whether it's sickness or persecution, earthquakes or insults, these are all part of the price of living in obedience to the call and sovereignty of God in our lives. As we choose to follow Jesus in the way that he directs us, we choose everything that he allows, that he puts in our way, if you like. And so as we unpack this passage, probably not in the detail that it deserves, it's quite a lot, uh, it's quite a big passage, Um, my prayer is that the wonderful counselor, the author of truth, Jesus, will will bring about courage, will bring about confidence, steadfastness, endurance, and dare I say it, joy in the midst of the experience of the hardships of your life, whatever they are. I believe this passage is actually relevant to all of us. So three points from this passage this morning. James tells us, what do we face for Jesus? James tells us how we can face it. And finally, James tells us, who do we face it with? What, how, and who? So firstly, what do we face? Verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance, that's the deal as a believer. We will face trials and suffering of many kinds. Not if, when. If you if you've recently been on an Alpha course, by the way, you've committed to your uh, you've committed your life to Jesus. uh, the Bible actually says this is what you're in for. We didn't tell you that on the six weeks, did we? <laughs> I remember when I first uh, became a Christian in York some th- 12, 13 years ago now, one of the preachers at St. Mike's Church in um, York said to us, You know, you know what? If it all turns out to be mumbo jumbo, if at the end of it all it turns out not to be true, then at least we will have lived a good and honourable life as a Christian. Because that's what Christianity produces, doesn't it? A loving, forgiving, humble life. So whether it's true or not, whatever, what have you got to lose? Seems fair, doesn't it? That statement sat comfortably with me for quite a number of years, actually. Until I read and really understood what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15... He he says, if the resurrection of Jesus isn't true, and there is no life beyond what we see here and now, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are are of all people most to be pitied. That's totally opposite, isn't it? Completely opposite from what what the guy from St. Mike's told us on Sunday morning. The Apostle Paul is saying here, if your hope in Jesus proves false in the end, we as believers are to be pitied more than anyone. Not what have you got to lose. You see, a lot of us Western Christians, me included, uh, don't completely get what Paul is saying. And you know what? There's a good reason for that. When you hear the testimonies of people uh, coming to know Um, Jesus. We often hear how life has become easier, how life has become better than before, don't we? You see, in Teesside, becoming a Christian has psychological benefits. It has relational benefits. For me, it had financial benefits as I learned how to steward my money. For me, it had marital benefits. I'm not knocking any of them. Biblical, they're good. So what on earth is the Apostle Paul saying when he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pities. What's the difference with him? I'll tell you what the difference was. You see, for Paul, the Apostle Paul, as you read the Bible, being a Christian wasn't the good life. It wasn't a life of increased ease and comfort To Paul, the Christian life following Jesus meant a life of chosen suffering and hardship, facing death every day, whippings, beatings with rods, risking his life at the hands of robbers and angry mobs, cold, sleepless nights, imprisonment, shipwrecks, flogging, stoning, hunger, thirst. Paul's belief in God, his confidence in the resurrection of Jesus, hope of eternal fellowship with Jesus led him to voluntarily take a path of extreme suffering. And because of his suffering, and because of his suffering life for Jesus, if all he believed turned out to be baloney, untrue, he would have been the most pitiable man going because his life was otherwise so miserable. He could have quite easily led the good life and comfort. He was was a, a respectable Jew. He had all the benefits of Roman citizenship. He could have lived that life. He could have done that. But he chose not to. And so now, and so now do you see why Paul says what he says. Without Jesus, his chosen lifestyle wouldn't have made any sense at all. John Piper writes this, um, <clears throat> Paul did not see his relation to Christ as the key to maximizing his physical comforts and pleasures in life, no. Paul's relation to Christ was a call to choose suffering, a suffering that was beyond what would make atheism meaningful or beautiful or heroic. It was a suffering that would have been utterly foolish and pitiable to choose if there is no resurrection into the joyful presence of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, and all that means for us as Christians, Paul understood that normal Christianity for him as he saw it was a life of chosen suffering for Jesus. That's what the Bible says we face. How did Paul encourage and strengthen his new converts? He says in Acts 14, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. What does, he say, what does he say to the church at Philippi? For it is being granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. What does he say to the church at Thessalonica? He tells them not to be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we are destined for them. What does he tell Timothy? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. Do you get the message? But hey, don't just listen to the Apostle Paul. What did Jesus say about our lives? Your life, my life, what do we face as Christians? What did Jesus say? He said in Luke 9, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and execution tool daily and follow me. He said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. He said in Luke 10, go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. He said in Luke 21, you'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. On the cross, even Jesus himself chose suffering. John 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Jubilee. the Bible doesn't beat around the bush? The Bible promises us that we face a life of suffering and trials. You know what? Don't be shocked by it. Don't be startled by it, but instead expect it. Most importantly, be prepared for it. In fact, as I was reading this, I kind of thought we need to prepare our children for this too. So how do we do that? That takes us to the second point. How can we we face the inevitability of suffering for Jesus, whether it's cancer or conflict? Well, this passage tells us that we need a new perspective. What does it say in verse 2? Consider it pure joy my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Pure joy. What on earth is the Apostle Paul saying? Is he saying, don't you just love suffering? Boy, this feels good. Well, hey, give me more, more lashings, more stonings. I'm loving it. Of course he isn't. Look more carefully at what it says. He says, consider it, joy, when this stuff happens to you. He knows what pain and torture and dis- discomfort are like. He's not a masochist. He, he completely recognizes that the physical and emotional experience of any suffering is hurt, is pain. So when he says, consider it, pure joy, when you suffer, he's not saying, well, hey, sir, suffering, live it up. Instead, he's asking us to deliberately stop for a moment and consider, think, reason out the suffering that you are experiencing from a bigger viewpoint, from God's viewpoint, taking into account the very wisdom, the word, the promises of God. That's why he says, consider it pure joy. From the silence here this morning... I can very, it's, it's really obvious that we find this difficult, don't we? It is. And I think part of that difficulty is the fact that I don't believe Christian joy, what the Bible describes as Christian joy, is what the world calls joy or happiness. What the world calls happiness is getting control of your life so that you keep your circumstances favourable and comfortable all the time. Why? Because this culture says this world is all there is. If you lose love here, if you lose happiness here, there's no consolation. You've lost everything. Now you might say, yeah, but I'm a Christian. I believe in the Bible. I know what eschatology means. Let me tell you this, the culture you live in shapes you profoundly. You might deny it because culture is often invisible to us. Uh, Don't ask a fish about water because he'll say, what's water? It so surrounds you that you don't even see it. We are soaked in our culture and our culture says, do everything to avoid suffering. Try harder and harder to make your career go well. Try harder and harder to make your bank account grow bigger. Try harder and harder uh, to please your wife or your husband and your children, try harder and harder, to think positively. And doing those things aren't necessarily bad things. But some of them in fact, some of them are good, but what James is saying here, asking us to consider is, the, is that Christian joy, biblical joy, is something altogether different. Christian joy is not rooted in primarily in these other worldly things, because they're too unstable. Christian joy is rooted in God, in Jesus primarily. John Piper writes, every joy that does not have Jesus as the central gladness of that joy is a hollow joy that in the end will burst like a bubble. And so what James is exhorting his brothers and sisters in Christ to consider is instead of allowing suffering to get the better of us, instead of of allowing suffering to get the better of us, to open us up um, to, say, temptation or sin, to make us walk away from God, he says, stop, think, get a new perspective, get God's perspective. Get the the perspective of God's riches and promises now and forever. Get the wisdom of God, not your own. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. In verse 5 he says, If any of you lacks wisdom in this situation, in suffering, you should ask God who gives generously. And as you do that, says James, as you go through trials, as you suffer for Christ, as you recognize the grace and strength of God in your life, as it brings fortitude and endurance and perseverance, lo and behold, sure enough, it will bring you biblical joy, a joy rooted in knowing the love and faithfulness and security of God, a totally new perspective. And you know what? This isn't positive thinking either. This isn't brainwashing. No way. This is the tuning of, of your mind and heart and feelings into the very center and reality of God, who he is. And as we get this divine perspective, it forces us to rely less on ourselves and more on him. If you really think about it, that's the only way, that's the only sensible way to face trials and suffering and difficult life situations. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians one eight, he says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he'll deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to, to deliver us. Have you seen what happens there? He goes from despair to joy. Hear this Christian joy grows in the midst of unfavorable circumstances, suffering, and persecution, more so than it would if things were just going okay. If life's not going the way you're expecting uh, this morning, God wants you to consider the opportunity that your situation gives you to press into all the riches and security, love and wonder of this Jesus who died on the cross for you. It's a totally new perspective, isn't it? Charles Spurgeon said, they who dive into the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. And the pearl of greatest price is the glory of Jesus. The Bible Jubilee, again and again, exhorts us to pursue joy in suffering. That's a radical truth. Do you have this perspective? So first point, what do we face? We face trials of many kinds. Second point, how do we face it? A new perspective. Consider it pure joy. That's what the Bible says, that's what James is saying. Finally, who do we face it with? So there's no surprises here. We face it with Jesus, the one who suffered for us, the one we've been singing about and praising. This morning, the one who different people have come forward, shouting their prayers and encouragement through him. This is the crucial difference when it comes to suffering as Christians. This is totally unique. There's a true story in the um, um, written in the Book of Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel three, from around 600 BC, when King Nebuchadnezzar—he was a meanie. He was a bad king where King Nebuchadnezzar ordered that a statue be built in his honor and that all the peoples of Babylon were to come and worship at the feet of this gold statue. And anyone who didn't, he said, would be thrown into a fiery furnace alive. And if you know this story, this historical story, and um, three men didn't, three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, couldn't, wouldn't bow down to any other god but the god of Israel, Yahweh. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, in a fit of fury and rage, prepared the hottest furnace he could, so hot that the guards who brought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, Abednego, uh, close to the fiery furnace were were themselves burned up. It was so hot. And so the story goes that these three men were thrown into the fire, but to King Nebuchadnezzar's absolute amazement, he saw something he just couldn't believe was happening. This is what it says in Daniel's, Daniel three, twenty-four: When King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his... Uh, then King Nebuchadnezzar... After seeing what he saw in the fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet. In amazement, and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, Your Majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth fourth looks like the son of the gods. Who was that person who went into the fire with Shadrach, Meshach? And Abednego. Most people would say it was Jesus, the Son of God. Notice the story doesn't say Jesus stopped them from being thrown into the fiery furnace. If you believe in Jesus, God, he could have easily have done that, couldn't he? No, it says Jesus went into the fiery furnace himself to save them. And that's the amazing thing about Christianity. No other faith would dare to say the same thing about their God. We as Christians believe in a suffering God. We believe in a God who put his feet in our shoes. The Bible tells us that the Christian God isn't an impassive observer just looking on at a distance, immune to what we feel. No way. Quite the opposite. Hebrews 4 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. God is a God who suffers alongside us. He knows what it's like. Jesus was crucified for you and for me. As Spurgeon said, Jesus Christ was up on the cross, hurting, bleeding, dying, looking down at the people, forsaking him, denying him, betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in the universe, he stayed. Jesus on the cross was utterly alone, forsaken. He drank the full, deserved vehemence and fierceness of God's holy wrath poured out against all of sin, yours, mine. All our self-centeredness, all our selfishness, all our pride, all our disregard for God. Jesus endured the hottest, fiery furnace there could be for you and for me. Why? Why? So that in our suffering, like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, we might never be alone in the fire. If you're going through suffering this morning, you need to know that's who we face all of our suffering with. If you're going through being uprooted, if you're if you can't actually speak out without someone imprisoning you or beating you in a different country, you need to know that you're suffering with Jesus and for Jesus. If you're going through difficult trials and troubles at home, with your family, in your marriage maybe, in different settings, with illness, you need to know that you are suffering You face that suffering with Jesus you can know with all confidence and certainty the certainty of the cross that in your personal fiery furnace God has sent you Jesus himself and he is enough, he is the last part of this passage is a warning actually It brings a reality to suffering that we must take seriously. You see, suffering tests our faith. Through suffering, Satan wants to destroy our faith. That's his agenda. However, also through through suffering, God wants to purify our faith. That's what a true biblical understanding of faith is all about. In fact, the phrase here, testing your faith, in Greek, has connotations of smelting in it. You know what smelting is? Teesside, during the Industrial Revolution, was famous worldwide for its iron industry. And what they used to do is smelt the raw iron ore from the Cleveland Hills to extract the pure metal, the iron, from the rock. And this smelting process that is described here in James as he says, testing your faith involved putting the raw iron ore straight out of the ground into a fiery furnace, applying tremendous heat to it. And as they did that, the worthless metals, the impure stuff, would either oxidise, vaporise off, or fall away as slag, leaving solid, valuable iron, which was often used to make steel. Smelting. That's what used to happen here in the, uh, in the works. And what James is saying here is that suffering is a kind of furnace, like smelting, that tests our faith. Many Christians that I've known over the years, sadly, in the midst of suffering and difficulty, just walk away. They do. Suffering doesn't always strengthen us. We can can become bitter and vengeful. We can uh, start doubting God, as verse 6 tells us. We can be like a wave of the sea, uh, blown and tossed by the wind. That's what suffering can do. This this passage is real. It can often, it can and often does lead to temptation and sin and ultimately an inner death in us. That's what James is warning us about at the end of this passage that we've been reading this morning. When suffering comes, Jubilee, we need to be wise. Jubilee, none of us, none of us, will find comfort and rest by endlessly focusing on our suffering and letting it consume us. Trying to answer why, 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 again and again, doubting God as if our suffering is something completely out of the blue. None of us will find peace or strength by reliving and reviewing our suffering endlessly. None of us. It really doesn't work. What brings rest and release in the fiery furnace is lifting your eyes, as we sang this morning, lifting your eyes above our suffering, above our heart, uh, above our hurt, above our sorrow, and meditating on the cross of Jesus. When you look at the cross and recognize his love for you in his darkest hour and receive his care for you in your darkest hour, right in the midst of that furnace, you'll become... Like pure, perfect, I am, steadfast, strong, growing in maturity, growing in completeness as you face trial and trial and trial, with and for Jesus. Whatever you're going through, Jubilee, whatever, however hard it is, however uncertain life may seem, however lonely you might feel, however unfair and random. You think life is the cards you've been dealt, as it were. This is what the Bible says. Let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Suffering, insults, bad news, persecution, the lot. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him He endured the cross. He went into the fiery furnace for you, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, Jesus, the one who who you faced suffering with. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. Let's pray, shall we? The band could come up. Um... We're also going to take our collection uh, now as we um, If you're a visitor, we don't want your money. Thanks for coming along. This is just for people to regularly give into the life of the church. Um, if we all stand up, shall we? Uh, our little daughter, four years old, drew this this morning, and it's it might be a bit hard to pick out what it is, but basically there's a heart there and there's Jesus on the cross, thorns in his scalp, bleeding. And actually, this is describing the love of God. If you want to know what God is, you look to the cross. You look to the cross. If you're suffering, if anything's going on in your life, you look to the cross. If you're in If your life is very comfortable and good and joyful, that is brilliant. Thank Jesus on the cross. How do we get through this stuff? What does the Bible say? We worship him. We center our focus on him. We look to him, the perfecter of our faith. Let's worship.